Hey there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of XP Gains. My name is McThane, as always, and I'm here with my co-host and fairy godparent, Mr. Silverstrike. And today we're going to be doing the second of our two episodes that we recorded together. This is number 16, so if you haven't checked out number 15, definitely go and check that out. This is kind of a follow-on, but it's not entirely related, so you can listen to them at different times. It doesn't really matter. There's no particular order here, but this does follow on from the beginning of the discussion that we had toward the end of the last episode where we were talking about game design, RNG, various other things. So this is going to be a more technical episode where we're talking about issues of balance, RNG, game design in general. It's a little bit more under the hood than our typical game reviews. So buckle yourself in, and we hope you enjoy it. See you on the flip side. You know, the system is not designed that I need a hundred no. phones, whereas the game yeah. is designed as to make me buy those hundred or, you know, however many times you, you, you know, you can get the player to purchase whatever in-app purchase exists. Well, so I'm, I'm not just really talking about this, though. I'm talking about the design element of random number generators. There's really only a very small handful of situations where I would say that random number generation is an ideal or even desirable or favorable choice in terms of selecting how an outcome is decided in a game, right? I've worked on game design. I've designed my own role-playing game from the ground up with no input from anybody else. And one of the factors in this game is that you do roll dice to determine the effectiveness of your character. You'll be familiar, you've played my game, right? You've played Horizon. So you will also notice, however, that where there is a random element in the dice rolling, there are three or four different elements that counterbalance that random element. And the main purpose of the random element of the dice rolling is to determine two things. One, how well invested are you in a given action? How much is up to chance in your case? Number two, you cannot ever rely on an exact outcome, and that provides variability. You will not always score X number when you take a given test, and because of that, you cannot metagame the system. And so this makes the adventure more believable, more immersive, and ultimately more enjoyable because you cannot know that you will succeed or know that you will fail. You have a chance, right? Certain circumstances will mean you don't really have a chance, and certain circumstances will mean there's not really any probability of your failure, right? But at the same time, there's highs and lows, and that actually makes it more interesting. And this is the only situation that I can think of where that is a desirable use of random number generation. Why else would you do this? Okay, let's 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 talk about this because I think we have touched up on an interesting topic here. So one of my favorite game series is Fire Emblem, as I've said, and Fire Emblem contains historically a lot of RNG because every attack you make is percentage based. There's a certain percent chance that you will hit and there's a certain percent chance that you will crit. Quite similar to 
let's say XCOM. But I would imagine that this is all about risk management as it is in XCOM. Yes, exactly. Then there's RNG in AI calculations, right? Which is also a thing. For example, I've been playing a lot of Total War and the way that factions, their initial state and their armies are generated based on RNG. So whether you have a certain positive diplomacy boost at the start of the game or a negative one is based on random numbers, right? This is to keep the game different every time you play. RNG is used to define aggressiveness traits uh, of leaders when you're playing a game of civilization. You know, RNG is useful, right? In all of these examples, though, it's the same thing that you keep coming back to, and that's variability. Yeah, exactly. It's the fact that the experience is not exactly the same every single time. You can't plan it out from start to finish every single time. This is a desirable yes, thing. Yes, exactly. All of these games I've mentioned are games you can play and keep playing because of the RNG nature of the game. But where I'm talking about this is partly... We did talk about rewards and where that's linked to money. So yes, of course, I can see the advantage of doing that. You want people to pay you money. And so you put things behind a random wall. And the way to get around the wall is by spending money. Sometimes even spending the money is random. So you will spend a random amount of money as well. Um, yes, but- that's what I wanted to contrast that against. And you apparently too, right? Yes, but... I'm arguing that in many cases, for example, Warframe, yes, where you can earn anything in the game, and there are many things that you can't even buy, mm-hmm. things that you can't even trade other players for using premium currency. There's no way that you can financially get a lot of the items in the game, but they're still behind random paywalls. And even in the example, I think XCOM is a, uh, an excellent example. Um, as is from the sound of things, as is, um, fire emblem. Yes. Because while I understand the value of risk management, I don't understand why almost everything hinges on chance to such a high degree. And I can remember cases in, in Mm -hmm. XCOM where there was absolutely no way to anticipate the catastrophic levels of failure (laughs) that have ended game playthroughs for me. (laughs) Like yes. literally, you fail five 90% chances in a row. I mean, statistically, you're talking about yeah. one in billions, mm. <laughs> one in billions. And yet I'm definitely not the only person who's had this experience. I've been reading up on RNG ever since I started playing Fire Emblem, you know, a little bit more on higher difficulties. And what's interesting is that, you know, I've learned about the many multiple types of RN rolling that exists and i'm sure you're familiar with this too as uh you know you've done the role play uh, system and in earlier fire emblem games for example they used the one rn system which means only one random number is generated and that's it so the odds of a catastrophic failure for example uh if you have a 90 percent hit chance then every number that was um, higher than a, than a nine, and it would roll one to 10, uh, would be a failure. And everything below a nine would be a success or you know, up to a nine to be more precise. Which would sometimes lead to you rolling the, uh, you know, the, the 10 and you'd fail. And your unit would not hit. 
Yeah, there are actually really good examples of this in certain role-playing games. Um, the way that I modeled my dice and the reason why we roll um, in Horizon Out of the Ashes, my role-playing game, we roll five ten-sided dice or five d10s for people who are more familiar. This is just a quick aside here, but um, I think it links well into what you're about to say and puts maybe a physical perspective on it so it might be easier to understand yeah. what you're about to say. Um, but basically, in my system, you roll five dice. And each die obviously has one in 10 outcomes. Now, the reason we roll specifically five, I've tried it with three and I've tried it with 10. And I found that 10 was so consistent because you had 10 different dice and every die has a one in 10 chance of rolling specific numbers or specific percentages. And so it ends up being so consistent that you can almost always plan around it being within a certain what like plus or minus one of a specific yeah, value, yeah. right? And it it was too easy to plan it. And so for me to get the variability that I desired, I added and removed the number of dice that you roll and increased the score value per die so yeah. that any given exception or any given outlier would be more likely to create a variability. And I, I ended up with five dice being worth two score each for a total of 10 score. Um, right. So that's how I ended up there. But there is another role-playing system that uses something called a percentile or a D100 system. And there you roll only two dice. Yes. One representing ones and one representing tens. And you have to roll over or under a certain number, which is between one and 100. The problem with this is that let's say that I need to roll under 60 or better yet, under 63. If my tens dice is over six, the one's dice doesn't matter. If my tens dice is under six, the one's dice doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, yeah you yeah. see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. 90% of the still time. Stuck with yeah, the one RN. Exactly. 90% of the time you're stuck with one entry, right? And it only matters in that in that 10% chance. So this is where you were coming from, I think, with your with your one RN. You only roll one. And because you're only rolling one, the statistical reliability of that is very, very poor. You're going to get outliers. Yes, in exactly. Wall. So where did they develop that then? Yeah. So what they did is they went to 2RN and they take the average of your role. Oh, right. So we're talking about theoretical numbers now. So what they did is they, they roll twice and then they do some funky math with that. I don't know exactly what they, what they do. I'm not sure if they take like the average or the median or, you know. Are made, but it's also interesting because actually, um, the RN, uh, the number generator itself, um, crunches the numbers on every action that you do. For example, on, in the GBA games, uh, if you move your character or your unit, and the game needs to do a calculation, like calculate the path to a particular tile, then the RN will change. So there's actually, you know, these these people who do uh, the kind of LTC playthroughs, which means they want to go for the lowest turn count. Uh, they figure out how the RNG system works and they work around it. So what they do is they make a safe state of the game. They try to hit an enemy and if, you know, in, in the low turn count scenario, they want to hit the enemy with their character. And if they don't, they just muck around in the UI a little bit and then they muck around until they hit. It's kind of interesting how they do this. But anyway, that's an aside. That Turns really out sounds like a very complicated way of cheating, to be honest. It's what it is. But there's <laughs> a certain 
Right. Okay. Um, no, there's a, there's a, there's very, <laughs> actually, I want to, I want to talk about a few of these interesting kind of modes that I've seen online that people are playing. Um, but I, uh, let me just finish the, the quickly, the, right, okay. uh, so they went to the number, yeah, they went to 2RN topic. and people figured they out went to 2RN. Right. Yeah. What's also interesting is that there have been a few games on uh, 3DS and one of them, uh, has two different, uh, paths that you can take and they have a different RN system in place for each of those two paths. So it turns out that um, on the more difficult path, um, the the curve of the RN is slightly different. And what you're seeing is slightly more positive outcomes than what you're actually getting. So for example, when you have what the UI says is a 90% hit chance, the actual hit percent chance is lower. Whereas on the other route, it was the opposite. So if you would see 90% hit chance, it would actually be 96. And a 98% hit chance would just hit all the time. This the, the kind of percentages and what you get is actually influenced by difficulty levels. So not the chances that you see, but the chances that you get. Yeah, because um, if you ask a player to make a judgment on, is this 96% chance going to hit? And you use the one or n model, or you sh show, or you, you know, the actual chance is lower than what they anticipate, which is they anticipate a ninety six percent to hit all the time. Because I mean, what are the odds you're going to get those four percent, right? But it, that's not how it works. If you have a ninety six percent chance of hitting a character or rolling something there's a 4% chance that you'll miss that. That's four out of 100 times. If you were to do that attack 100 times, you'd fail four times out of 100. You'd fail once every 25 times. And Or in the, or in the case of my are, playthroughs, you'd fail um, five out of three times. Yes. So we humans are really bad at this kind of stuff. We're really bad at estimating no you know chances effectively we're real super bad at it in fact well you could argue that that's actually an evolutionary thing if you wanted to to go down that that route because we are we're programmed to to favor our success in our minds because otherwise we would never take risk and without risk we we stagnate and this has led to corporate entities exploiting the ideas behind chance calculation and uh, you know like oh there's a certain percent chance you know people are going to jump on this anyway um real quick aside i wanted to talk about the many ways that you can kind of make a playthrough of a game with random number generation more interesting because i just thought about this and i've been really enjoying these youtubers play you know, these Fire Emblem games, but they've tweaked them a little bit. And I kind of wanted to hear what you think about these, because what they've done is they've hacked some of these ROMs sometimes uh, to make the game more complex and more difficult. And sometimes they just impose a specific like difficulty or a challenge upon themselves. I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, of course, the Iron Man playthrough, right? 
once you lose a character, they're gone. Um, no reloading saves, no resetting. Uh, if you were doing a hardcore run, then the game is over. If like you get the game over screen, you have to start from the beginning again. I think those are the two most commonly known because I think they're also in XCOM, but I'm not sure. I think they are, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, but there's also other ways you can play, and Fire Emblem specifically. There's this one channel I follow quite frequently, and this guy has you know years of experience with the game um, and with the series in general, and he has done some really crazy shit. Like, there's the 0% growths run which is one of the more interesting ones. So instead of your units leveling up after accumulating certain amounts of XP, they don't level up at all. They remain at their base level and you have to clear the game like that. And the way a Fire Emblem game works is throughout the story, every now and then you do get new characters on these maps later on. So you can still beat the game, but you have to kind of recruit these characters in order to be able to keep clearing the maps. <laughs> which is interesting. Whereas, you know, if you were to just play the game regularly, you would just level everybody up and you would have really powerful characters. This is like super... So the idea know, is that essentially instead of your characters growing with you, you have to keep finding new ones. Yes. Okay. And you have to cleverly use your really low-level characters to get yourself out of, you know, these problematic situations where you would usually have more experienced units fight, right? So whereas you would have, for example, one unit that could counter another unit, you would need to team up with four units to take down this one unit because your guys are all at the base level. So, I mean, that sounds not simple, right? I mean, sounds rather difficult. Right, okay, I'm with you. Just just, just you wait, there's, there's even better way. Turns out that wasn't hard enough for uh for this particular guy and um he said you know what would be even better what if after accumulating certain amounts of xp your units get weaker the character's level just drops yeah the stats drop so basically on what your you're playing is accelerated age simulator <laughs> yes. yes all your characters become 90 years old and drop dead see this is interesting because it enforces a playstyle where you're efficient you have to be efficient with every hit because, you know, one particular hit could be the difference between your character leveling and then suddenly becoming too weak to actually be able to beat the chapter. It's crazy. It's a really super challenging run. And then there's, you know, all these other tweaks. Like, for example, there's um, a run that you can do where the recruitment of the characters is reversed. This is an interesting one because, you know, generally speaking, there's a bunch of characters you get at the start, and then, you know, every chapter onward, you would get an additional unit or an additional character. But this time, all the units are swapped, um, and so are their bases and stats. So the unit that is the most powerful guy in the game that you would get at the final level to beat the dragon boss is now the first character you get, and he's super weak. <laughs> It's an interesting approach to play the game because you suddenly have a roster of units that you generally don't use much because you only get them near the end game. And now all of a sudden you have time to level them up and 
it, it's a totally different game too, because you get different characters and different types of characters in different chapters. So perhaps in the second chapter, when you would usually get a healer, this time you're getting an archer or something like that. So which is how does all of this come back to RNG? And why is RNG good in these environments? Well, so all the ways I've just discussed, right, are ways to make the game more replayable without adding RNG, right? So, yeah. And that's exactly my point. So why is it that game developers are going with the super... I'm, I'm sorry for anyone who's a developer who's listening to this who thinks differently. <laughs> I do apologize, but I regard RNG as lazy. I regard it as lazy. In 90% of the applications where I see RNG, something else would do better. And it, especially when you have the computer doing all the heavy lifting on the mathematics for you, there's no reason why. Well, in general, randomization of numbers is something you need in order to be able to do certain stuff, right? If you want an AI to behave differently, or if you want a certain scenario to be different. That's not strictly it, what I'm talking about, though. If you're talking no, about, I that, know. that's not, that's, that's decision-making. Yes, that's If you decision want decision-making to be different, then yes, more power to you, right? I, I believe that sometimes they should behave in ways that don't make sense because not everything does make sense. But what I'm... Are you saying that you think it is a good idea to just strip the uh, percentage hit rates out of an XCOM game or a Fire Emblem game? And would you say that would make the game better? Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that there should be something more complex than you have a 70% chance to hit. Well, there's always modifiers, right? In XCOM and in Fire Emblem as well, depending on the terrain, depending on other things. But for example, why not have, instead of, okay, you have a 70% chance to hit. No, 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 hear me out here. Instead of having a 70% chance to hit, how about you have five different gradients of damage from worst to best? And instead of having a 70% chance to hit, you are in a certain range on that sliding scale. It can still be variable, but it's not 100% damage or zero damage. That's the kind of thing that's, that goes beyond variability and into pass-fail random chance. But that's also, th that gives you just inconsistent damage, which I think people experience as being more annoying than it being a either you hit or you don't scenario. But then you have... It makes every interaction in the game more flaky. Does it? I don't think it makes it more flaky than hit or miss. I think it does, uh, unless you also have scenarios where you will always do maximum damage. But that's, that's like kind of you, my point, because but, in, in XCOM, you do have the point-blank range shot with a shotgun where you have a 100% chance to hit because you're so close and a 100% chance to crit because shotguns get a bonus to crit chance when they're close, blah, 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 blah. So my point is there are ways that you can reduce the variability to zero. That, that works for me. And if there are ways to play around that, that's fine. 
but what I'd be looking for is a shot from a certain range does less damage. It just simply does. And a shot against an enemy who is less exposed does less damage. It simply does. Which means that if you're shooting at an enemy who's not very exposed from really far away, it's not going to come up with a very good result. That doesn't involve any RNG whatsoever, but it would play well from a strategic perspective, because it's all about how do you position. And you could influence this this with a dozen more factors without adding any RNG. Yes, I think this is true. But it would be incredibly variable. And then, when the only RNG is based on the enemy AI's decision-making, then you have something that's that's strategically and tactically entertaining without any, oh, you had a 96% chance, but you missed again, right? Or, oh, you had a 10% chance to hit, but for some reason you just nailed that guy in the face. In a way, I feel like that's almost as cheap because I don't feel like I earned a win when I snipe somebody in the face on a 10% chance, and the only reason I took that shot was because my character literally had nothing else to do that turn. Right, and you don't experience that as being, oh, yeah, I hit a 10% shot. No, I look at that and I go, okay, I guess. Like, I feel like I've been rewarded for a poor decision. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Like, I just, I just did something and then you won. It's like, what? did I? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like where, where I get my yeah. enjoyment is where I get my enjoyment is from the, the, the effective execution of a well-designed or well-engineered strategy. Yes. Does that make sense? So games with little variability. Yes, I understand. They don't have to have a tiny amount of variability, but if you have a large amount of variability, that's okay as long as you have ways of controlling, managing, limiting, reducing, or increasing that variability. Well, yeah, I would be in favor of making these things, uh, you know, player choice. Do you want to have hit rates on your shots? Uh, if not, then maybe that's offset by another system. But I think it comes down to well, and you can develop. You could time even you here. could even factor that in as part of the game. For example, like if critical hits are always based on chance, but for example, piercing hits depend on the accuracy. So accuracy is guaranteed, whereas your criticals are always chance based. But criticals have the chance of doing five times bonus damage. Accuracy never does. Do you see what I'm saying? You could even factor these into the same the same game mm -hmm. for what it's worth i think most people are in agreement with you See, and they will not it's be... funny because you say that but if you look at the usage statistics for a lot of items in mobas you will not find a dps build without crits in it they don't exist sure but i mean um, there's games without RNG in there, and I think those are the ones that are enjoyed by more people. What I mean is, um, let's take a game that has no RNG in it, like, let's say an Uncharted or a God of War. There's no 
RNG that I can point at, like, oh, sometimes the axe does 20% damage or something. No, your axe will always hit if you swing it the right way. Your shots with your pistol will always hit where the cursor's at. I think those games without, you know, I, I wouldn't even say that like a Fire Emblem or an XCOM or, you know, games with that RNG as a, you know, a part of one of the key systems of the game is what makes people not want to play them. But it also makes them more fun, in my view. But there's, again, there's ways you can cheat that stuff out too if you want to. So you don't have to be subject to it, which is kind of fun too. You know, that's why these, you know, these people who play through the game and want to get the low turn count, they actually go and they, they make it so that every hit connects every time. Yeah, I'm not really sure. We don't have that... the stats, but I would love to see like, you know, like numbers on this kind of stuff too. And, you know. it's it's a topic that is, I think, ripe for research. See, I think the interesting Um, thing about these um, low turn count playthroughs is really what that comes down to is that someone somewhere has probably just done the math. You know mathematically what the minimum turn count is, don't you? Because you can work out what the damage is, you can work out what the crit chance is, you can work out everything else. So... If you know that you're going to hit and crit on every single attack, you can mathematically calculate. So in a way, I almost don't see the point in even running the playthrough because you know exactly how uh, it's going to go. Well, there's there's many factors that you have to take into, into consideration when you're doing an LTC run through a game. And sometimes what's interesting is, you know, generally speaking for most of these games, people have already figured out what the optimal path is through the game with the lowest turn count. But sometimes somebody will come up with a new way to go through the game. And they'll be like, oh, if you move that way and then do that, then you can actually shave off a turn here. And that will also change the next chapter because your character isn't leveled up there. You know, like every, it's like the butterfly effect, right? If at some point in your LTC playthrough something changes, everything that, you know, is followed by that change. Sure, but it still comes down to math. It still comes down to the fact that somebody calculated that. You wouldn't have to do the playthrough. If you have all of the variables and you have a computer system that can calculate its way through the system, yes. Uh, But there's, you know, people who do, you know, low turn counts. Uh, where some RNG is still involved. Like, uh, for example, in, in Fire Emblem, when you have a level up of a character, the stat increase is randomized. There's people who play LTC runs where every stat increases because that's technically possible sometimes, right? Sometimes you can get a perfect level up where every stat increases by one and they make it so that, you know, when they play their low, you know, their low turn count, they say, the rules are as such, my character gets all the level ups every time. And then there's other people who say, well, no, um, we're going to keep the RNG for the stats and we're, as a challenger, going to then try to do the campaign in the least amount of moves possible with the stats that are randomized. So depending on how much randomization you want to keep in the game, it is not necessarily something that has been decided already. 
Okay, fair enough. So I guess you're just choosing your degree of variability at that point. So it's exactly the same as yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes, it's kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. The way I see this is, it's just really interesting to see how many how many different ways people can play a game that is really, when you describe it, very basic. It's like a grid. There's you know terrain. You have some stats. You get some you know level ups or or maybe not. And it doesn't seem like a really complex game or, you know, it doesn't seem like you can play it many different ways, but there's so much replayability there. And depending, of course, on, you know, you could even do your own custom rules, right? And you could say, well, maybe I want to do this game and complete it only using archers. Maybe I want to beat this level like of XCOM only using these two characters. You can, you know, put up your own constraints and make the game even more interesting that way, um, which I think is... Um, why I really like games that give you flexibility and modding support to to add these things in and you can just tweak the game to your own desire. Um, which is why I really like playing the Total War games, for example, because there's always people who do like certain tweaks to make the game easier or more difficult or add in new scenarios or stuff like that that makes the game better and more customizable. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing the way there's almost this uh, cottage aftermarket industry for modifying games that people love but wish they were slightly different. Yeah, and it's sad that consoles don't allow this, right? Because, of course, they are locked proprietary systems and you cannot change a console game. Um, you know, unless you jailbreak machines and you have these hackers that are dedicated to breaking open these locked boxes that are effectively consoles. It's interesting because some of the most revered games of this generation um, have never been modified or never been edited, right? So all of those console exclusives have not been modified. Um, I did recently see a video on somebody who was uh, hacking on Bloodborne, for example. And Bloodborne, as you may know, is a PS4 exclusive. So it's only ever been out on PS4. And, you know, PS4 was cracked at a certain firmware. Um, and, you know, people have been blowing the game wide open ever since. And they've been looking into it. There's, you know, people working on emulators now for PS4 uh, as well. But basically what they've done is they've, they've looked at Bloodborne. They found, you know, uh, evidence of unused bosses. Uh, they found out that there's like certain tools that developers used during development. For example... Uh, a demo that I saw on Twitter a bunch of um, days ago, I think. Somebody had just figured out uh, and re-enabled a developer feature that you could just use uh, a certain key combination and then you could assume control over an enemy and run around in the level as that enemy, which is, inter which is interesting. Um, and then you can kind of set up um, your own difficult or more difficult run of a particular level this way because uh, of course bloodborne and, and dark souls and such they have fixed enemy spawns right so whenever you die you have to restart from a save point and then go through the level again and you know where the enemies are going to be because they're always at the same uh places and it you know the very first time you play through the game it's an exercise in frustration in a way 
because you don't know anything and you go in and then there's oh there's a skeleton here and there's like a bad guy there and you have to kind of figure out a way to get through the so game this is one of the things that fascinates me about the kind of the souls like genre though is because that element of variability where enemies too, are randomly spawned that has been removed and so yeah, in they a don't. sense rng is no longer a factor you can learn it you can master it yes and yes. this is Exactly what I'm Very talking about. So. Because there's no RNG, you're not going to talk to your friend who said, oh, that was really easy for me. And you're like, what? That was freaking impossible for me. I barely made it through. I lost all my resources, well, it, blah, blah, blah. There's two things here, I think, that, that are, are interesting to note. Indeed, there's no RNG in terms of enemy spawn. And there's no difficulty levels either. You, you can't choose, I want to take less damage from an enemy or not. No, there's no choice you get the difficulty that developers have chosen, and that's it. Good luck. If you want to beat the game, it's going to have to be because you beat it, not because you chose easy mode, which I think is interesting. And then, you know, there's this huge debate about should they need to put in an easy mode or not? Like, what if I have a disability and I can't physically beat the game because I have a disability, you know? Is the developer... Uh, do they have like a moral responsibility to put that in or not? You know, there's been some debate about this. I don't think I want to weigh into this debate, but no, I <laughs> think that's, out that there's, yeah. uh, I think that's a very much one that, um, I think that's something you have to decide as a developer. What do I want to do? Do I want to make the most accessible game or do I want to make a game that is supposed to be played in a particular way? And, you know, if, if you can't do it, then that's too bad. That's a choice you have to make. And it's clear that the guys, who've made the Souls games and Bloodborne and Sekiro have chosen for the latter. They want to have a fixed experience that you have to play in a specific way if you want to beat the game. Otherwise, you can't do it. Yeah, and there's definitely, I think, room for that, realistically speaking. It might be harsh to say that to people who obviously physically cannot complete the game, but... Ultimately, games are a form of entertainment. They're a form of art. It's. I, I also think that the disability problem uh, is something that you can perhaps solve in other ways. Microsoft has their accessible controller, for example. Yeah, and you're also you're talking about adding things like mod support, and that's why I would say yes, one hundred percent. Like mod support would solve that problem right away because I guarantee you that there are other people out there with the know-how who will quite happily do that. But that means that if you want to beat this game officially, you beat it officially or you don't beat it. Yeah, that's inter you know, That's why it's interesting uh, that you know games like Sekiro and Dark Souls, who have which you know have released on PC, there's. You know, it doesn't take a week for like an easy mode patch to come out, which is great for, you know, people who struggle. But there's always going to be some purists to say, oh, you know, it's bad. <laughs> you shouldn't make the game easy, but you know, whatever. <laughs> it's just good that there's the option to do that. And it is clear to me too that some developers have really embraced the modding community uh, very well. Developers like Bethesda, have historically done very well with, uh, you know, Oblivion and with, with Skyrim, with Fallout. Yeah, it's a shame their own mods are so crummy and so expensive. Yeah, it's a shame that they, that they at a certain point, they, they wanted to go in a certain direction with paid mods and they have gone in that direction 
with their subsequent like special edition or like bundled editions they've you know put in like these stores where you can buy stuff buy these silly mods and cosmetics and it's a shame that they've done that uh yeah it's unfortunate but, but even you know even as so, you say though it's a good thing that it's uh, that that they've added this in and it's a good thing that you know developers are doing this i'm like like the total war games are so much fun simply because there's so many different mods out there for these games i they put in workshop integration for steam and they've done so ever since like a certain release rome rome 2 i think which was you know universally panned when it was released and then you know people started making it better started fixing it uh the developers like even up to i think it was last year they did patches big ones even on a really old game it's kind of interesting to see um i think there's two things that are really that i'm very proud to see the guys at creative assembly which make the total war games do and that is they support their games with mods and they support their games in the long run and that latter thing is something that you don't really see much in the industry like if a game's been out for six years the likelihood of it getting another patch is slim unless it's a live service game yeah and even then the likelihood of it getting a patch if it's six years old is still slim because probably number two or number three has been released at that point exactly which is why i thought it was so special that the developers went back to room two to like implement new lighting systems uh, and you know all kinds of. And stuff. you know what? This is the wacky thing, right? Because it seems like there must be some prevalent idea among shareholders or investment companies or something that supporting a game in the long run is essentially this really long tail that you don't want to have to look after, and it's not profitable, and it's not worth doing, and it's really expensive, and blah 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 blah. But if you look at games yeah. that have stood the test of time. Yes. Let's talk about Eve. Yeah. Holy cow. Did the developers <laughs> of Eve not make any money? I'm pretty sure they do. I'm pretty sure they do. And that game, if you look back at screenshots from when that game was first released, today, yeah. that looks like a steaming pile of excrement, <laughs> right? <laughs> Emphasis on the steam, right? Yes. Today... It looks great. And there there, it's there are still yeah. major, huge updates coming out. And there are people who have invested thousands upon thousands of hours into that game and still spend a huge amount of money on it all the time. Right? And the, the thing is, that all comes down to design and support. People like the game. They like the way it works. The developers are adding to it without changing it and they support it and they keep building on it and they keep improving it. Why would you not keep playing that game? Personally, it's not for me. Yeah, it's not for me either, but I, I think I get your point. But there it is. I mean, and I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> if we look at things like MOBAs, there are still a lot of MOBAs out there. They're still really yeah. popular. Again, they haven't really mm -hmm. been vastly changed i mean for heaven's sake man like smite still uses the same crappy map that it's been using forever right <laughs> yeah and the list of things goes on right so i mean it's just i think it's a great example of how just keeping a game going 
is often hugely, hugely profitable in the long run, we don't need more of these one trick pony. I don't even like I I need to have a name for these because I come up with a name for everything. I'm going to come up with a name for these. But these splurge marketing companies or or companies, um, games, where it's basically just a matter of getting as many people on the train at the beginning as you possibly can and then just running that train off a cliff as fast as you can so that you don't have to maintain the train, right? It makes it makes no sense. It's like it's like the concept of having a race car that blows up the minute it crosses the finishing line. Not in today's world it doesn't work, no. It used to work because it used to be you'd, you'd ship a game on a cartridge or a DVD or a Blu-ray and there would not be any updates, so you'd have to do it right the first time. Yeah, but back then they also kind of, generally speaking, they had a higher win rate when it came to doing it right the first time as well. Yes, because they took longer to make the game. I think it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to take into account because it's very easy to release a game too early and then say you're going to patch it like they've done with yeah, Anthem. But there needs to be there needs to be a game there in the first place. Like you can do content additions, you can do blah 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 blah, but you have to have the foundation yeah, sure. set. You have to have the foundations, but it's it's also possible that you have the foundations, but the game is incredibly glitchy or buggy, and that's also not great. Um, for example, the new Total War Three Kingdoms, you know, just to be a little bit, uh, you know, relevant here, was released uh, last week, but it was actually supposed to come out months ago, but they said we'll postpone it so we can polish the game and. It has been incredibly well received, and people have said the polish has really helped. And it's kind of like Miyamoto said, you know, he said a bad game that was released too soon is bad forever, but a postponed release, a game that eventually releases as a good game, will always be a good game. And it's true that you can kind of fix a game if you've had a bad launch, especially nowadays with day one patches and, you know, updates and roadmaps. You know, people come up with these roadmaps like, oh, we're going to do, we're going to improve the game. We're going to add all these features. But that initial release is an important moment. Yeah, it's like they say, you know, the first impressions last. Yeah, it's also exactly why early access is a thing. If this idea of having a release wasn't such a big thing, there would be no early access. There would just be, you buy the game and yeah, I guess it's not finished, but you know, you get, you get a, like, no, you have to decide at a certain point, this is it guys, have at it. Like this is a, a complete product that you can enjoy. Yeah. See, this is why it's I'm, interesting. Really, I'm really into the idea of games as a service. I really like this. I think it's good for consumers. It's good for developers. But at the same time, like like you're saying, there needs to be that initial setup. There needs to be yeah. something that you begin with. There needs to be the opening scene of the movie that creates your initial impressions, that sets the tone, yeah. that starts mm -hmm. you out on the journey. And then there needs to be the journey. You know, there's there's this one thing that really has stuck with me. Uh, from the entire Anthem debacle. Okay. And that is this. 
EA decided that on PC, if you pre-purchase the game, you could play the game a week early, prior to the day one patch. Everybody just called that day the release day for Anthem on PC, because that's when people could get their hands on the game. And the game was absolutely panned. And everybody who was in PR, you know, was trying to manage this disaster of a game was saying, but no, you were just playing an early access version of the game a week ahead of the official release. And while it was true that the day one patch contained a lot of fixes, the general consensus was that whether it was the game a week before the official release or the game at release, that it was not a finished product. Well, and the the other thing is that if you if you pre-purchased in order to get access to that you pre-purchased yeah. in order to get access to that you weren't beta testing yeah. exactly what's interesting to me is that nowadays when a game releases because there's so many people playing video games you actually have people who can say this game is release worthy or not and it is helpful that you can now go onto forums and you know social communities like for example on steam and consult people and look do these people think this is a game that was released too soon or not and you don't have to take you know the word of the the marketing companies that want to sell you the game and listen to that no 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 you can just go to the people who have bought the game and, and ask them, is it good or not? And if it's good, it generally tends to sell well. And if it's bad, it tends to die. Yeah. And really, I think this is the and, thing that the shareholders don't seem to be anticipating is that there is a community surrounding this industry. And th I mean, they will kiss and tell, <laughs> you know? This is interesting yeah. because what can you do if you don't like this development? Steam has forums. There's social media. What can you do? Well, there's one way you can prevent the influence of uh, this uh, system. You see, Steam has all of their reviews kind of integrated into the store pages, right? So... If a game does really poorly, there's like the orange color and it, it's like the, the feedback on this game is mixed. You can see that on the store page, right? This is helpful for me as a consumer, but not for the publisher. Which is why it is interesting, I think, that the guys at Epic are reluctant to put in a review system in their platform. Because it will not help the sales of video games on their store. Well, I will if they're good, but maybe that's the double-edged sword they're not willing to, uh, to wield. Well, you can put any game on any store. There's no guarantee that a particular game is going to be well-received. You know something? I think there, there is... Okay, there's no guarantee. There's no way that no. you can, I don't know dance counterclockwise around uh you know the tree stump of an oak <laughs> under the full moon and then 100% you're going to get good reviews but in the same sense that we were talking about RNG earlier there yes. are definitely definitely 
ways that you can improve your odds. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm not denying that. To the point where you can be to the point where you can be pretty certain that even if it's not wildly explosively popular, it will be well respected by the people who like it. You can't guarantee everyone will like it. I think you can guarantee no. that it's a quality product. You see where I'm going with that. You can't guarantee that 90% of all gamers are going to be playing it. You can guarantee that, I don't know, maybe 20% of people will happily play it a solid number of hours, and every time you release an update, they will be back. And ultimately, if we're to take, again, games like EVE, games like Warframe, the little engines that could, they probably weren't explosively popular when they emerged, and a lot of them are still niche. Even Warframe is relatively niche. I wouldn't say that it's a hugely explosive mainstream game. A lot of people play it for a while and then forget it exists. Warframe is interesting because it, I think it had a lot of its success directly tied to how Total Biscuit reviewed it. And uh, the developers and, and you know the, the marketing people have said so. Like if it wasn't for Total Biscuit, Warframe would not be as popular as it is today. Period. That cannot be debated, which is interesting. And that's just one guy. Yeah, he was a guy with a lot and of And we kind though. of we kind of miss somebody quite like Total Biscuit in this industry nowadays, I feel. There's a, a few, you know, fairly big reviewers, but you know, Total Biscuit was a bit of a titan. He had a lot of clout indeed. He was Yeah, uh, but why did he have that clout as well? Because he wasn't a sellout. He liked no, what he liked. Exactly. He was honest about what he liked and he was honest about what he disliked and a lot of the a lot of the competitors that he had never really got as big as as he did because a lot of them would take sponsorships. A lot of them would, yeah, just they were willing to sell out for the cash. And ultimately, I mean, we we always come back to the same thing, and that is those who are hungry for money always end up screwing themselves over. Yeah, whether it is by putting in microtransactions, whether it is by accepting or creating sponsorship deals there's ways you can use these beneficially uh you know a lot of apex legends success can be directly tied to the kind of the sponsorship wave that was released or unleashed i should say on twitch where all these streamers were suddenly playing apex that doesn't change the fact that the core of the game is good because if it wasn't for the core of the game being good, nobody would keep playing the game. That, but that's exactly my point. It's what you were talking about. You mentioned this in a previous episode, I believe. Um, there were a lot of people who initially started out during the paid premium advertising yes. period, but then kept playing. So exactly. they gave people the kind of the the buy-in incentive, essentially. They gave the yeah. the instant cash back when you buy, right? But then <laughs> the continued membership yes. was up to your discretion. They Absolutely, got you in the yes. door. You didn't have to stay there, and they knew it, but they just needed to get people to try it. And that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I think that's reasonable. People might not have given it the chance. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's valid, but there was a good game. And the other thing is, when you see games coming out and player feedback is so-so, 
or they're positive about some yes. things and they're negative about some mm -hmm. things. And over time, the game grows and develops and starts answering those problems that come out. There's one game that has been around for a very long time now, Diablo 3. Yeah. And if you look at that and the way that that has changed and evolved over the years, so many things that people were initially, initially disappointed in or felt could have been improved in the base game have been added, implemented, tweaked, changed. So many things have been added to that game now. If you go back, I mean, if you were to play Diablo 3 without having played it before today, it's a different game than it was when it was released. And I think yes. that curries a vast amount of goodwill and good favor among the community when you're ready to take it on the chin if you made a mistake. If you did some things that maybe you thought were a good idea at the time, and then reviews came out and they were honest reviews, and instead of just paying everybody to shut up and sweep it under the rug, instead you're like, look, I want you to review this game, good or bad, and I want you to give your honest opinion about it. If it's bad, we want to have the knowledge so that we can improve it. We want to create that better product. We don't want to get the sales because nobody talks about the bad things. We want to get the sales because we fixed the bad things. And I think that really it's it's about being honorable. But that honor seems to have evaporated from the industry of late. There are not many players who are doing that right now. I'm waiting for the people who come in and start doing that again. And I think they're going to make a killing when they do. Yeah, I think there's a small amount of companies. So not very many, but there's a few who are doing franchises that they iteratively improve upon they take the player feedback from a particular game and then they address it in either a patch or the next entry in the series if it's uh you know episodic a yeah. big if it if it's no or if it's just big feedback like you know you've received feedback that a certain system was not enjoyed quite as much as you think um for example, I expect that the guys who made Divinity Original Sin 2, that whatever game they bring out next is not going to have the split armor and magic armor system in their game anymore, because a lot of people complained about that. That wasn't something they could just patch out in the definitive edition. It would just change the nature of the game dramatically. But it was one of the big things that was you know talked about as a pain point. Uh, something that they perceived as a mistake. Interesting. Which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder how they would uh, how they would solve that as well. I actually thought it was one of the more interesting mechanics. Oftentimes, it was one of the more clumsy mechanics. Yeah, exactly. And it's that clumsiness that they uh, they they learned about, and they they said, "Yeah, we know this is not perfect." Yeah, I think realistically speaking, though, if you even look at Divinity Original Sin 2 as a game. I mean, it's an excellent example of how the series moved on between two games. I mean, it's vastly different from the first one in terms of smoothness and polish. Yeah, um, I have to go back and, and, and play more of the first game. I, oh, I don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I went back a couple of months ago, and I actually, once I pushed myself past, because I think... The first and the second game both suffer a little bit in that their initial introduction area where you're stuck for the first few hours okay, of the game. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Drags yeah. on wait, too long. Wait, 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 wait until you play the definitive edition. 
I have played the first, I want to say four hours of the definitive mm, edition. Okay, fair enough. Because yeah. it is significantly different. Yeah, they've changed uh, the initial, sh- like the ship a little bit and stuff. I've seen, I've seen some. I of felt the that was improved yes. though. Yeah, but I mean, we just like in our playthrough on the the release version of the game, we spent a long time on Fort Joy, and I don't think that Fort Joy has gotten any shorter. I think they've changed the the pacing a little bit. I really enjoyed that initial introduction to the game. To be fair. Yeah, me too. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it, but I think it went on too long because I thought that like we were done with half of the game when we when we like left for joy and it's like no, 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 this is the first chapter. <laughs> it's like, "Whoa, okay." I think there was so much to do in the introductory in, in like that introduction area. I thought maybe they could have just split it up in in two chunks and it would have been more pa- palatable. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree there. I feel like... I mean, the second game suffers from this far less than the first. Yeah, that's you that's know, definitely let's true. Let's be... Yeah, but... Let's be... I mean, I didn't have any issues while we... I mean, while we were playing the game, we had fun playing through that entire section of the game, right? Yeah. So I'm not going to complain too much about it. But the first game really suffered, you know, because you end up in this town... But you can't quite leave the town just yet until you do like this particular set of objective of, of of objectives, and then you can leave. Well, and, see, I felt like in the second game there was really there was a huge amount to do there. I think you might say that it hasn't gotten any shorter, but we also spent a long time doing side quests and various other things while we were there. So, whereas we we don't yeah. tend to do as much of that now, and we're also quicker to play through the game now. Um, so I think there's. Partly that, partly the fact that if I was going to say there's a critique I would make, it's about the overall pacing. If you were to draw up the length of the chapters on a pie chart, the first chapter is definitely the largest. And so I think I would agree with you there. You you might want to make that a bit more consistent so that it doesn't feel like the chapter is this huge open area with tons and tons and tons to do. And then the rest just kind of races by until suddenly you're at the end of the game. Yeah, they... They acknowledge this too, yeah. um, in in their little uh, GDC talk, uh, because that was the the first part that they released in early access, and as such, more people played it. So it was also more balanced in terms of level progression. Uh, one of the side effects, for example, of uh, that they found out only later, only after release, was that it was very well balanced. But it turns out, if you do all the side objectives like we did then you end up being overleveled as you get further into the story and it trivializes everything else in the game and they had to do a hot like a hot fix patch to bump up the difficulty for people who had like leveled over the kind of thresholds that they thought people would be at in later portions of the game that were not tested quite as much as the first chapter of the game which was released in early access yeah, I guess that makes it's sense. Very, very interesting uh, to hear that, though. Mm-hmm. because you know you can't anticipate this as a developer. You know, you can't just like, oh, early access, we're going to release our entire no. game. No, that's not how it. And works. with it being a video game as well, um, you obviously can't just change that kind of stuff on the fly. I mean, you could. This is another thing that I actually would love to talk at length about, and that is level scaling, love yeah. or hate. I I think level scaling a lot of the time is stupid. Um, 
in the sense that if oh, if I yeah, go up a level, uh, so do the enemies. And it's kind of like, well, so really at the end of the day, what's the point? Can I just tell you the stupidest implementation of that that I've ever seen in a video game? Yes. That's in Oblivion, where you would, uh, at a certain point, like you would get like the top tier armor, which is like divine Daedric armor, like the Demon Lord's armor, you know, the or the equivalent, uh, which is super rare. And um, every bandit that you encounter <laughs> suddenly wears it because their loot also levels up alongside you. <laughs> So, you know, that was silly. So what you would get is at the start of the game, everybody's wearing like fur armor and uh, then you level up and you become stronger and so do the bandits. And all of a sudden the bandits are wearing heavy armor and all of a sudden the bandits are wearing like the most powerful armor in the game, which trivializes everything. And again, this is why freaking mods are amazing because people patched that shit out and uh, the game became far better without the system and then they scrapped that in their sequel so again this kind of combines the you know taking player feedback and you know changing aspects of your game and fixing that in the sequel to keep players uh happy sure good stuff no it's true i mean i was kind of thinking of an example as well not to you know obviously completely discount everything you just said but um i was kind of thinking about borderlands where essentially your level progression is actually more about gaining extra abilities because the levels don't yeah. ever really get easier to kill. But then for me, my question would be, why even bother with having levels? Why not just have me unlock abilities over time? The thing for me, I had this experience when I was in, I think I was playing Fallout 3, and this was early on in my experience with Fallout 3. I was playing my first character and my character was about level 20 and I remember, or maybe even earlier than that, maybe about 15. And I remember coming across some random dudes from the Brotherhood of Steel, just walking around in the open. And I remember looking at these guys and just thinking, there's no way I can fight those guys. <laughs> and I saved my game. I quick saved and I... I snuck up on the top of a hill and yeah, I discovered that by sneak attacking and playing smart, I, I could. And after killing them all, I was disappointed. And I Because it was so easy to kill because them. Because it was so easy to kill them. And I felt like, you know, there should be guys walking around that you're not just going to be able to kill. Or areas of the map, if you wanted to go a little bit more old school with it, areas of the map where there are enemy strongholds and these enemies are going to be very difficult. Being able to go there and challenge them in their own territory is an achievement. Yeah, that's what they changed with subsequent games. So it's Skyrim and, and you will see these changes in Fallout 4 and, and you know sequels as well, is they, they added some areas. Uh, this was also in New Vegas, I believe. Uh, some areas where enemies are just not leveled, uh, they're just, they have a fixed level. So if you happen to go there as a low-level character, you're going to get absolutely wrecked you know, one of the places that is um, that comes to mind, and for example, New Vegas is there's a, a the Deathclaw Sanctuary. Oh gosh, yeah. If you go there, yeah. prepare your anus, literally. Yeah, you're dead. <laughs> you know, uh, that's too bad. You know, they don't suddenly level alongside you or anything. No, no, you are dead if you go there. But it's, uh, yeah, you bring up an interesting point. Uh, th this was uh, definitely an issue in mm -hmm. Fallout 3 as well, yeah. 
what's also problematic i think in in a in a way i guess is that uh bethesda games uh and this is the case for oblivion this is the case for fallout 3 fallout new vegas also the case for fallout 4 i think although maybe it doesn't use a slider um the difficulty level is a slider so it just basically changes the damage percentages uh, hardest difficulty is you take more damage and you deal less damage and easiest difficulty is the opposite of that right you do more damage and you take almost none and by default it's somewhere in the middle but really if you want to challenge uh in a system that levels alongside you then you have to make yeah. the difficulty much higher but then it just ends up being a chore See, what I would love to see is a system that's more about enemies having more options, more abilities, things like that. Again, this comes back to the idea that I had for design of this game, where your enemy would evolve alongside you. And it's not so much that the enemy has more health. There might be specific versions of this enemy that have more health, sure, but that would be a strategic advantage. For example, the enemy may decide it's a good idea to create big tanky units, but there will be far fewer of them. Or they may choose swarms of relatively light units, etc., etc., etc. And these, these units may have different abilities that make them dangerous if you play in a certain way, or less dangerous if you play in another way. And so it's all about figuring out how to outplay as opposed to just figuring out how to out-damage. Yes. You see, with all these developments in AI and machine learning... I think the way that we're going to see video games progress in terms of difficulty levels is going to be interesting because what we have now is developers can input multipliers and you know you can make some adjustments and maybe there's some RNG involved to make it you know less annoying or more depending annoying on what you want yeah. to play the game <laughs> depending on your exactly your personal preferences. Uh, I think the how we're going to see games evolve is I think uh, the more uh, it becomes easier to put AI in your game, or at least you know machine learning and you know um, mm -hmm. these these networks, these neural networks. Uh, you know I I don't like to say artificial intelligence because that implies kind of like a super super intelligence aspect. Uh, to your game, which is not true. You you have agents that are being trained. It's kind of like um, it's an iterative design process, essentially. Well, it's like agents being trained. It kind of reminds me of the the StarCraft Two um, deep learning thing that they're doing, uh, where they're basically they're training AIs against each other, and now they are beating pros at the game these bots yeah and they're doing so convincingly but you can tweak how well an agent performs so uh, i think it would be interesting to see and we we've seen this in limited ways like there's been some games that have played with this idea of adapting the ai's playstyle to counter yours for example which is interesting, right? So you play the game in a certain way, well, the AI is going to pick up on that and he's going to counter that specific way so you're forced to adapt. That's one way to do difficulty. Um, whether the AI, the AI makes any mistakes while it's adapting to your strategy, that is dependent on then, you know, perhaps the difficulty level that you've chosen and how how well it applies its, its strategic uh, changes. Because 
if you have sufficient technology and processing power, you can make an AI that will always beat the player, which is, of course, not what you want. <laughs> you yeah, want so the it's player more about to have a fighting figuring chance. out how to prevent the AI from being perfect. Yeah, as it how, gravitates yeah. towards perfection. Yes. How to do? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, what you have developers do today is you have the AI figure out a way to win, and then make you have to force the the like the the calculations that were made. You have to like force a mistake here and there, um, so that it doesn't always work what the enemy or like the the ai quote unquote the ai the the you know enemy bot is trying to do so in a game of civilization for example uh somebody programmed the the ai to know exactly what units it needs to take your capital now of course you can do the the battle on the battlefield and depending on the difficulty level it will perfectly counter whatever it is you're doing, because it can adapt on the fly on whatever it is you're doing, and it can always outthink you. But they have to put in a certain, I guess, a wall, like the AI shouldn't be smarter than this, or it shouldn't be more perfect than this. It should make mistakes here. Because otherwise, your game of Total War that is about, you know, positioning your units correctly, learning how to do, you know, the hammer and anvil strategy, just turns into help, I'm being outmatched by the AI every damn time. And that's no fun. That doesn't make you feel like a, a smart warlord. It makes you feel like a freaking idiot. Yep. Which ultimately is not very entertaining. And the purpose is entertainment. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Indeed. I think difficulty in video games is difficult to figure out because... <laughs> <laughs> really? Difficulty is difficult. Because people have all these different perceptions and ideas of what they want in a particular game. That's why I sometimes think, you know, maybe the guys at From Software who go for their, like, this is the fixed difficulty and this is how you're supposed to go through the game isn't a wrong approach, but it will remove some semblance of replayability from your game because i think that's that's in it ah, it it creates it creates replayability and it also denies replayability so there comes a point at which you're tired of replaying the same experience over and over and over but at the same time up until you get to that point the enjoyment of mastering the fixed challenge that lies ahead of you and perfecting that I think also appeals to a lot of people. So there's a pro and there's a con. I think it would be fair to say. Um, what would be really interesting for me is the concept of, let's take co-op as an example. Let's say that we have four players and the, let's say every player has a secret hidden profile. There's a profile that they have access to that they can look at their own stats, their own playstyle, blah, blah, blah. But the enemy AI also has access to this profile. And so it will attempt to play differently against each player with a certain degree of, let's call it um, imperfection built in. And what would be really interesting there is the way different players can attack each other's counters. For example, if I tend to play aggressively, the AI will play defensively and controllingly in order to counter my aggression. 
but other players can make use of the AI being defensive. Yes. For example, if another player is maybe not controlling, but they're absolutely defensive, then they can just step in between, and suddenly the the enemy AI being defensive loses them the game because they don't press the advantage when they could. See, this is partially why I think Divinity Original Sin 2 is so enjoyable, because they actually have an AI system built in that does somewhat what you're explaining right now. They actually talked about this at GDC. They didn't go into like much detail, but they basically rewrote the entire system that does like the combat and it adapts. Well, they don't seem very good at countering my character. No, I think you have done a really good job. But, uh, you know, you can clearly see yeah. uh, that it, it goes for certain strategies, right? Um, yeah. Well, you can see, for example, that it avoids the tank. Yes. It tries not to attack the tank where possible. It tries to, like time and time again, the AI will go for me because I'm the backliner. But the thing is, I've built teleports, not just on my character, but um, to teleport enemies away from me as well. So, I mean... I've countered the counters to my character, in a sense, and that was one of the reasons why I built my character the way I did. Um, it's kind of unfortunate because I feel that our, our mutual friend, Mr. Jeers, actually went for a, a simpler, more direct archetype and has suffered from that. Yes. Because he often gets ignored in the majority of the battles and he's the melee tank, which... Well, but he he does have like taunt spells, and he you know he he does, he does get now. in there. He does get. But in do you there remember? Do you remember the dark days before his taunt, yeah. or before taunt got patched, and taunt <laughs> needed you to break the enemy armor yes. before you could taunt? Yes. And he he was just running after them all the time, trying to break their armor. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it didn't help that we were both ranged characters, also, and kind of weak. Um, yeah, I mean the as you've clearly stated the game isn't perfect but i think it, it is making interesting steps towards the uh uh the system that we'd want but i, I it's just incredibly difficult how do you balance this like do, well, do you want i just think you I just, just think said for example yeah. you know you know the ai wasn't going for the tank but if the ai is competent it will never go for the tank it shouldn't go for the tank really well, see, this is this is where I was thinking about this because again, this came back to my considerations for this uh, this game that I was I was thinking about. Um, it's a, a video game, not my my RPG. Um, but I was considering how do you how do you structure the game in such a way that the enemy has to deal with the tank. The concept of a tank almost becomes irrelevant. Well, it, it almost has to be environmentally based, right? Like the tank actually blocks off or has the 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 like the physical or the magical prowess or ability to protect the others, so that you actually have to get through them. Like I think a, a nice example is is for example um, when you're playing Overwatch. You have tanky characters who can actually physically, like Reinhardt, for example, who can throw up a wall and you have to get through the wall and through Reinhardt if you want to get to those people behind. Like sometimes there's a way you can use the map to sure, kind but of there's also, avoid this, but you have to deal with the tanks or with the supports, yeah. right? You can't well, just ignore also, them. Reinhardt is like the classic example of a tank in a Holy Trinity style setup. Yes. Because he literally prevents damage being dealt to his allies as long as they play around him. But 
the ways that you get around him are by outmaneuvering him. You can force him to divide his attention, or you can simply just pummel him into the ground with damage. All of these strategies are functional. So the question is, how do you engineer a situation where tanking has more applications? And that was that was really the conclusion that I came to is that, okay, you can create a scenario where the tank physically blocks off the enemy. But then I started dividing this up into archetypes and I was thinking, okay, so you have a tank who controls and the AI must deal with your tank because your tank just keeps knocking down the enemy. If they cannot physically get past him, you know, because he's building walls or he's knocking them down or he's stunning them or he's slowing them or whatever it is, um, or physically absorbing damage that's being dealt to his allies in a kind of supporting way, or a healer, for example, the AI going straight for the healer. That's another another perfect uh, example. And if you have a healer then who becomes less effective at healing, but more effective at surviving themselves, that's a very natural organic evolution in that system. And really, because you never have just one role, I think a game like that would actually be more interesting rather than more frustrating. Yeah, it's it's all about picks and counter picks, and, and you know how that works together. And you have to find the right place in the gray area, rather than making everything black and white. Um, in fact, I find a lot of the games that go down that route more frustrating because it seems to be that the go-to answer nowadays is just to make everyone deal damage, rather than having roles that people fit into. And I find that disappointing. Yeah. I, yeah, I can see why you're saying that. Yeah. Okay, so I think that pretty much wraps it up. We've talked an awful lot about different elements of game design. We've been through just about everything I can think of at the moment, um, at least on this topic. We've probably <laughs> pretty much run it dry. But uh, yeah, we hope you guys always enjoy being along for the ride here with us on XPG. This is a passion project. You know, this is just something we do for fun. So as always, this is something we really enjoy doing. And it's it's great to see the listens building up episode on episode. So yeah, we just do want to say a huge thank you. And of course, as always, guys, we want to give you a huge heartfelt thank you. We'll see you next time. And wherever you are in the world, we both want to wish you a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. We'll see you later, guys. Take care.